In this interview, I am once again joined by lucid dreaming teacher and best-selling author, Charlie Morley. In this episode, Charlie recounts a trip to South Africa to see his Buddhist guru, Lama Yeshe, and recalls a mystical experience he had there while on retreat with Dr. Daniel P. Brown. Charlie reveals his most effective lucid dreaming techniques, explains why meditation can be bad for trauma, details his work with veterans with PTSD, and demonstrates a powerful breath technique to regulate the nervous system. Charlie also speaks openly about his recent life struggles, including the terminal diagnosis of his mother, the end of his marriage, and an emotional breakdown that led to suicidal ideation. Charlie shares how these struggles have profoundly transformed every aspect of his life and clarified his life mission to help others. So without further ado, Charlie Morley. Charlie Morley, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, man. It's great to be here. Well, I'm so delighted to be uh, talking with you again. We were just discussing before we started recording. It's been four years since the episode we recorded um, about your life and work in lucid dreaming. And that was four years ago, episode number two. Mm, two. So there's the the best way, the fastest way to find episode number two of Charlie Morley is to go right back to the beginning (laughs) and then skip one over. And Charlie's there, number two. Absolutely fantastic. And that in that interview, we discussed in quite a bit of detail uh, your biography, uh, your work in lucid dreaming, and a lot of other interesting topics too, like your relationship to Lama Yeshe, mm. who is your guru, your um, Buddhist guru, and how that relationship came about. And you tell several stories uh, of that relationship. So I really would encourage people if they haven't, uh, if you haven't seen that yet, to go back to episode two, I'll also, of course, link it in the show notes and, and learn about those things. Uh, it's a really fascinating uh, recording. <clears throat> and actually, from what I understand, you've recently seen Lama Yeshe again, of course, uh, many of us separated from loved ones and presumably also gurus in this time of uh, the last couple of years of the pandemic and so on. And I understand you recently went to see him. I- I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and in fact, that links to a couple of other things that we were talking about before too, including Keith McKenzie. Um, so I hadn't seen Lama Yeshe for a couple of years due to lockdown and stuff like that. You know, he was um, in not in strict isolation, but being kind of protected quite strictly because he's only got one lung, literally. You know, he had his lung removed because you got TB when they were escaping over the Himalayas and came into the refugee camps in India back in the late 60s, early 70s, I believe. So, uh, you know, he's really, really high risk. So I hadn't seen him for a couple of years. And he had gone out to South Africa to build um, a big new temple in Johannesburg uh, and also the Labrang uh, for the coming Akon Rinpoche. Um, and he'd, out, he'd been out there kind of overseeing the building work on that. And, you know, I'd be wanting to see him for a long time, but then uh, a dear friend of mine who actually the new book is dedicated to and who has also been on Guru Viking podcast, Keith McKenzie, a brilliant veteran friend of mine, he died um, reasonably suddenly. Um, in fact, strange coincidence, he, he actually went into a coma the, the, the day the book came out, I remember that. And then I think three or four weeks later, he, he died. And this is another thing, but I had the real honor actually of being by his bedside as he died. Um, Keith was a Buddhist chaplain and he had invited me into the Buddhist chaplaincy training too, which I had, I haven't completed yet, but I'm kind of well underway, completed the first section of. And um, so it was agreed that I would do Keith's um, 
kind of like the after death rites, uh, the laying of the mandala blanket over the body, the whispering in the ear of the bardo instructions, the certain prayers and stuff like that. So I had this really powerful experience, the most significant, definitely the most significant experience of my life was being with Keith as he died and being able to offer that to him. And after that, um, as often with the huge shocks of impermanence that Samsara gives us, I really got thinking and I thought, wow, if, if Keith could, you know, could die within a few weeks of going to a coma at the age of, you know, he wasn't an old guy, he was like 61, I think, maybe 62. I suddenly thought about Lama Yeshe. Um, so yeah, I bought a ticket and went out to see Lama Yeshe, possibly just for a kind of a 10 minute interview or chat. Um, so I went out to South Africa, ended up extending my stay a little bit because I managed to catch COVID when I was out there, but I guess I did fly to the hotspot of, um, of Omicron at the time. Um, but that was fine. I stayed in Airbnb and did an online retreat while I was there. So, you know, was as an attendee, so I was able to do that. And um, rather than spending a week in the Buddhist center, which I had planned to do, in which case I would have seen Lama Yeshe every day, but possibly only for 20 minutes a day over tea for a short interview. And he would have had his assistant with him and other people and stuff. By the time I ended up seeing him, when I arrived at the Buddhist center, his assistant had gone to pick up a chair for him, for his, his bad back. And long story, but the chair had been put on the top of the car, it had fallen off the car, it needed to be reattached. So the assistant was away for three hours. So I ended up having two hours alone with Lama Yeshe. Now that may not seem much, um, to people listening, but those in a, a kind of student guru relationship will know, actually, you don't often get a lot of alone time with your teacher, you know, because they're always surrounded by assistants or monks or nuns, you know, he was the abbot of Samaling Monastery, so he was always so busy. So I realized this was the longest extended period of alone time I'd ever had with him. So we had this wonderful time. And it was looking back and I'm like, oh, that's, that's kind of why I got um, COVID, I think. I really feel that that was actually the causes, conditions that maybe purified something that led to this wonderful time where I could have a good couple of solid hours with him. And he's an old guy who knows, I really hope I will see him again, but who knows? So I was really treating it like it might, might have been the last chat I had with him. Um, so yeah, I feel very deeply connected with him, uh, even more so now. What did you talk about? Ooh, what do we talk about? We we actually spoke for kind of about an hour and a half and I recorded it all actually thinking it might, you know, well, be useful at some point, but especially useful for me. We talked about um, what I'm doing. I asked him, actually, it's in, okay, it's interesting you asked that. Um, Jade, my former wife, had said to me just before I arrived at La Mieche, she said, this could be the last time you see him. And I was a little bit triggered, kind of annoyed that I was like, oh, I've just lost Keith. I'm not going to lose Lama Yeshe. He's fine. He's in good health. But it was really helpful she said that because I thought, well, maybe this is the last time I see him. He is in great health, by the way, anyone listening, but I just thought that. So I went into the meeting assuming this was the last time I would ever see him. And I realized that is great advice for any time you see a spiritual teacher. Treat it as if you or they are going to die tomorrow. So I asked really big questions like, what am I doing in life? Is this benefiting people? Um, what should I keep doing? What should I stop doing? What practices should I start? What practices should I should I leave? Um, and it was really powerful and I ended up, you know, now doing a new practice after that, which is the first time I've done a new practice for over kind of 10 years now. Um, and he was very supportive of the work with veterans, especially, uh, and the work with traumatized people and continued to say, do what you're doing, he said, you, you, he said uh, you have a way of 
very joyful explaining dream yoga, no religion, uh, no sect, very joyful, very easy to understand. Keep doing this, keep doing this, tell people, teach them how to uh, practice Dharma in the nighttime. And I was like, great, that's kind of what I've been trying to do. And that's just so great that he's telling me to keep doing it. Um, yeah, and there were some other things which, you know. <laughs> what a brilliant interviewer. Before we went on, just for people listening, I was saying to Steve how this is my favorite podcast. And so funny that I was one of the first people on it and then it became a podcast. The only one I'm really like, I wait for the subscriber updates. I'm like, oh, new Guru Viking, I just love it. And it's because Steve is such a good interviewer. Um, just some things about the practice, but as you know, that's, you know, that's, I should probably not talk about that so much. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, I was going to, I was going to actually ask you what, what's the new practice and any details, but it seems you'd rather keep that in the, in the secrecy. Yeah, just for now, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, you know, I was just listening to another, um, re-listening to an interview with Daniel P. Brown. Oh, I've just, that was who I was on retreat with when I said I did the online retreat. Mm. Um, in the week that I had COVID, I was doing the online retreat with Daniel P. Brown. Yeah, I, I kind of guessed that that was the case. Huh. And so, which is why I bring it up. So, you, you know, you, you've talked actually publicly about Daniel P. Brown, how impressed you are with him. Mm -hmm. um, uh, of course, for those who don't know who he is, well, maybe actually perhaps I'll leave it to you to say who he is. Um, very remarkable man, undoubtedly. Uh, I'm curious, actually, about your experience on that level one, I presume, retreat yeah. uh, with Daniel P. Brown. And perhaps you could contextualize a little bit of, 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 of what he's doing. Of course, we're going to get to the book and we're going to get to all of all of those things. But, you know, you have a very um, uh, dedicated uh, religious practice life, uh, as well as all the professional activities you're doing. And um, unusually, I think uh, so. And so th this is a great opportunity also to discuss, you know, with, with you, uh, some of your some of your takes as a practitioner, uh, also mm -hmm. on certain experiences. So um, yeah, what was your experience of that retreat? Can you maybe contextualize it a little bit? Yeah, I was very, very impressed. When I first found Daniel P. Brown through, I think an interview on maybe Buddha at the gas pump or something like that. Um, I was I just kept thinking, like, why have I never heard of this dude? This guy is seriously impressive. You know, to get to the highest ranks of Harvard Medical School, a trauma specialist, an attachment specialist, but also a lineage holder. He's been authorized to teach within both the Bun and the Nyingma traditions, and perhaps Kagyu as well. I'm, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, when I did the retreat with him, that one week retreat, what the thing that really stood out to me. At the beginning of the retreat, I was thinking, what a strange life path that if he is so clearly linked to these lineages, how come he spent the first 40 years in kind of uh, reaching the highest ranks of Western medicine and trauma research? And then it came to me, this is how bodhisattvas manifest today. You know, this is how they manifest. Perhaps being reborn in Tibet is not the place where they can benefit most beings. Perhaps it's being born in the West with a mind that allows one to rise to the highest peak of Western medical science and all the respect and, and contacts and ability to help all beings that opens up. And then at the same time, engaging in the lineage practices that go back thousands of years. And, and Daniel P. Brown kind of holds both. And I realized actually there's nothing contradictory in that at all. That is how bodhisattvas manifest. And I remember asking Lama Yeshe about this once because he, he confirmed this in that interview in the chat we had recently, actually. I said, you know, will there be, can we find you when you die, your reincarnation? And it wasn't that he said, I'm not coming back. You know, he's obviously taking the Bodhisattva vow, 
but that he seemed to be indicating I won't be coming back as Lama Yeshe. And the kind of intimation under it was that for some, it is very beneficial to come back as Tibetan Lamas to help all beings. But for other people, maybe the most beneficial person to come back in is a Western psychiatrist who can pioneer a new way of looking at trauma and help integrate and reduce shame and remove the shame in millions of trauma sufferers, just as Daniel P. Brown has done. And yet it is still Bodhisattva action. The Bodhisattva doesn't care about whether you're Tibetan or, or, or American. The Bodhisattva cares about how can I spend every moment waking of, of my waking and sleeping life, helping all beings, helping others, including myself, uh, including oneself. So um, that was what I really took from that. The retreat itself, um, it seemed to be each day trying to move people towards an experience of the awakened mind state or emptiness or Buddha mind or whatever you want to call it. And uh, I can say that on day four, I had an experience brief fleeting because my practice is so terrible and unstable. Um, but I, I did, there was a practice we were doing and I was very deep in the, it was a, not a complex practice at all. It was just based on the seven point meditation posture and seven point breathing exercise. Um, the exercise finished, the bell was rung, and then we went straight into a break, but it was really quick into the break. There's usually kind of questions, but this one went straight into the break and suddenly the screen was off, but I hadn't really finished the meditation. And I just sat back in the chair and I just looked around the room in this Airbnb in, in Johannesburg where I was isolating. The room looked identical to how it had looked before. There were no visuals, it's nothing psychedelic, anything like that. But everything was perfectly choreographed. I know that's a strange word to use, but that is the word. Everything was perfectly choreographed. As I breathed, the inhalation was perfectly choreographed with the plant that was in the corner. As I turned to look, the shape of the walls was perfectly choreographed to my body. It was this strange feeling of absolute perfection in everything. And it didn't fade. I was like, oh, it's still here. And then I saw a cracker that I had been eating on a, 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 a plate. And I just had this urge to eat the cracker. And I went and I picked up the cracker and I crunched on it like that. And as I crunched, the crunch was in, again, perfect choreography. So weird to say, but perfect choreography with the wall. Everything was choreographed, the sound of the crunch and my breath and the wall and the, the this, this perfect, almost kind of like divine choreography. <sighs> yeah, and then it faded <laughs> a couple of minutes later. But for those three or four minutes, I experienced the world in perfect choreography. There was nothing that ever needed. Oh, that was the other thing. There was some mess on the desk, like behind my screen. I was on like kind of quite a long table and there was just some mess. I don't know, my passport and something else and a crisp wrapper or something. The mess was in perfect order. It was perfectly choreographed. I was like, ah, oh, how wonderfully that crisp wrapper sits next to that passport. Yeah, it's actually interesting. Just saying it brings allows me to see more perfection in my slightly messy apartment here too. Hmm. Yeah, who knows? Well, wow, that's remarkable. Would you say that that's, is that what they call Rigpa? 
or how would you categorize that state? Because these states are are quite uh, extensively and um, precisely categorized often, aren't they? I'm not asking you to claim any attainment. You said it's, it's, it's a fleeting experience, but nonetheless, how, how would you categorize that? So I'm really interested in all the talks you've done with people who do the jhana work. Now, I've never done those practices myself. I'm a just do the Vajrayana practices. So I don't know where it sits. I know it sounds like descriptions of um, where you see the world as as divine, you see the world as a pure realm. Um, did did the apartment look like a pure realm? I don't know what a pure realm looks like. But I know that the apartment, nothing ever needed to change in that Airbnb room. Everything was perfectly again, choreographed, such a strange word, but perfectly choreographed in that moment so i don't know i really and i'm not being it's not humble brag i just literally don't know what kind of rig and stuff is it's like I, I what i say i do know though is the emptiness of experience in lucid dream and yes when i bit that cracker it was very much like being in a lucid dream hmm. where both the cracker you're biting into and the teeth that are biting it are all you there's no differentiation between the cracker and you absolutely it was that experience so the lucid dream state I, I know about that experience and i still think that the lucid dream state is the quickest and most direct way for a practitioner such as myself with zero attainments to experience in a very practical way the truth of emptiness you know and we hear these teachings form is emptiness emptiness is form. We think, what does that mean have a lucid dream and touch a wall and in the lucid dream, the wall will, or, you know, knock on a table and it will make the noise. It will feel solid. And yet, you, so it has form. You can't deny it has form. And yet also you can't deny that in your lucidity, you know, this is a projection of mind. You know, you know, you're asleep in bed and that this is all a three-dimensional hallucination of, of mind, empty of inherent existence. So, you know, it is empty and yet it seems to have form. It seems crazy that the lucid dream isn't used more often as a metaphor for experiencing emptiness and isn't isn't proffered more often by the teachers to give someone a direct experience of it. It can take decades to get to, well, so who knows, me, probably decades, more than decades, to get to any experience of emptiness. But in a lucid dream, something as simple as knocking on a wall in a lucid dream or knocking on a table, there you have it. Not a little bit like emptiness absolutely form is emptiness emptiness is form you experience it and you will never forget that and we know from the brain's point of view from the neuroscientific point of view that because the prefrontal cortex is activated in lucid dream the brain once you're lucid in a dream the brain doesn't think you are dreaming anymore the brain doesn't think you are imagining the brain thinks you're awake which is a very interesting philosophical um view of what awakeness is you know we think that to be conscious and awake our eyes are open Actually, from the brain, from that really kind of materialistic level, it's about activation of brain regions. So when you do that, and if you were knocking on the wall and then were to place your hand through the wall like you can in a lucid dream, the brain doesn't think you dreamt about that experience of emptiness. The brain thinks, wow, I just experienced form, emptiness, emptiness, form. And we also know that in the lucid dream, the brain is laying down neural pathways. So we know that you put someone in a brain scanner in a lucid dream and they do sports, or ride a bike and you see the same part of the brain light up for riding a bike the brain thinks they're actually riding a bike i would love to see what would happen if you put someone in a brain scanner fmri they have a lucid dream and then in the lucid dream they explore emptiness like walking through a wall 
or flying through the sky because what regions of the brain will light up then when we fly when we do you know seemingly superhuman things that'd be cool and um, anyone who can sleep in an fmri scanner i can't do it myself they're too noisy but if you can uh then let's do it and do some research on it mm -hmm. oh very interesting indeed um uh, you know you mentioned there that you don't have any attainments and uh one of the interesting um aspects i think of daniel brown's presentation then we'll move on from that is uh, he claims quite forcefully uh that his students have attained full mm -hmm. fruition of enlightenment not just awakening not even stabilization of awakening but also exhaustion of all karmic traces and so on and so forth living in a state that is only sort of sangue in that sense mm -hmm. but all the negative states are um have been expunged i suppose or purified got rid of and only positive states remain they only he says he has several students that have reached that and of course that's a remarkable um and claim and very unusual to make such a claim and he has his reasons i think for making those those kinds of claims um what do you think of that you know i suppose i if i if i was to sort of interpret what you said when you say you have no attainments of course i i will believe you uh, but on the other hand uh, there is a tendency or one school of thought that, that would downplay any of one's accomplishments especially publicly to the even to the point of outright lying um, about one's accomplishments um, there, that's one school of thought and the other another school of thought perhaps we could say daniel brown would be in that school of thought it seems would be at least in certain circumstances uh, in a public forum actually claiming even the highest degree of attainment that's possible um, so I'm I'm wondering how what how 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 you feel about that that dynamic and and those different approaches. Mm. How do I feel about it? I feel actually we had a kind of a chat about this on WhatsApp once. Do you remember where I talked about certain lucid dreams that I won't share? Yeah. Because it would create a barrier. It would create a block between the way I can communicate with people. So there are loads of loose dreams that I will share that are really far out and might even have an element of, if you read them, a projection of, wow, this guy's got something going on, but there are certain that I won't. And it's not necessarily that those would lead to any more, uh, it's not necessarily that those are kind of higher dreams, but that they just wouldn't benefit to be shared. There's no reason they wouldn't benefit and they would probably lead to ego aggrandizement on my own path or my own side. So just best not mention them. Maybe it's the same with that. Maybe it's about most. Well, I know it's about motivation. Um, with Daniel P. Brown, he's got Parkinson's pretty seriously now. You know, in the retreat I did with him, he had to have a translator. Everything he said had to be translated because the Parkinson's had affected his speech and his uh, facial expression so much. So I felt very blessed that, wow, God, maybe this is one of the last few times he'll be running such retreats. Um, but also, he said, on many occasions, there is now a sense of urgency due to my Parkinson's. Um, and I know that the next research study he's doing is with exactly that set of a handful of students who he claims to be in the awakened awareness state at all times, um, doing the neurological testing on them and seeing. And that seemed to be part of the kind of magnus opus, I believe that's the right term, that he's trying to, he, my term, not his, um, that he's trying to complete before the Parkinson's uh, overtakes him completely. So again, it seems like the motivation is very pure, that he's, that it's not about egrandizement or about kind of getting more people to his courses. It really seems about him wanting to um, use science to 
help prove the validity of his work. And just recently in South Africa, Lama Yeshe said that too, um, because we did a study, which I'd love to talk about later, uh, a PTSD study, which had very powerful results when we taught lucid dreaming. So much so the average PTSD score dropped beneath the PTSD threshold within one week. So I'm telling him about this study. And I said, you know, is it good to do these scientific studies? Shall I continue? And he said, yes, very good. He said, nowadays people worship science. And I was like, whoa, big, big statement. So he said, yeah, you know, if, is, if you're using scientific means to prove and help people have more faith in the Dharma practice, then yeah, science, scientific studies can be really good. And he, he, he really told me to continue doing them. So I think there's, there can be real benefit in that. Um, now, strangely, some of the people who were assisting on that one week course with Daniel P. Brown were some of his long term students. All I can say is I was very, very impressed by the tech on that weekend. I mean, they did not miss a beat. Someone was incredibly mindful in the Zoom room. And also there were things that I love words right? And I'm a bit deaf. So I'm reasonably good at kind of reading mouths too and stuff like that. And there were certain things that I really could not understand a word of what Daniel P. Brown said at certain times. And yet his students were just translating perfectly off the cuff. And when I saw them on camera, there was a deep, deep stillness within one of them in particular. And you, you know, some of you just look at someone a bit like dancers will get this. Sometimes you just look at the way somebody stands and you're like, you're a dancer or you're a martial artist, just the way their body holds itself. And I think there's a little bit the same with meditators from what little I know, where you can just kind of see in someone's face sometimes that a lot of practice has been done and they had that in their face with this particular person. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe that wasn't even one of his students. Maybe it was just the tech support guy, but I was very impressed by them nonetheless. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, I'd like well, to quiz you more on that, but I think perhaps we ought to move on. Um, you sent me your book, Wake Up to Sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Five excellent book. Five powerful practices to transform stress and trauma for peaceful sleep and mindful dreams. It's Charlie's latest book, and it's really uh, excellent. Uh, ask, I'm going to ask you a bit about that book. Um, this book has sprung from uh, your history of working particularly with veterans with PTSD. And from what I understand, you don't, uh, in all your workshops, uh, veterans are able to attend free of charge. You don't charge veterans. Yes. And uh, you've had quite a long history, including um, with Keith McKenzie. And actually, I'd like to read a little something from your intro uh, that refers to how you met Keith McKenzie, which I, which I believe is, is your entryway to working with veterans. I'd yeah, like to ask you about that. One. Yeah. You write, at a retreat that I was running in 2013, I met a man named Keith McKenzie. As he told me about his nightmares, I felt that familiar kinship. As I looked into his eyes, I realized that this time I didn't know that place. And no wonder, Keith was a veteran of the British Army's Parachute Regiment, as well as a retired firefighter with 20 years service. He had been to places that I could never know. Keith had quite a breakthrough at that retreat, as he was able, in his words, to integrate more of my PTSD in that four day retreat than in four years of therapy. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how it was you began working with veterans and perhaps uh, trace for us 
uh, the arc of that history. I know it's taken you all over the world, actually, learning from experts in the field. Mm. So, yeah, that was at the Holy Isle Retreat, which is where I believe I first met you, right? Not first, but we, oh. but all, uh, also. <laughs> yes, also on the Holy Isle Retreat, yeah. So, uh, which is a brilliant retreat center. And finally, this year, I'm starting to do uh, real life courses again, and I'll be at Holy Isle twice. So, um, yeah, Keith turned up at the Lucid Dream. So this was full on Lucid Dreaming Retreat, nothing to do with veterans or trauma or anything like that. It was before I, I got into that stuff. Um, and yeah, he turned up, he learned the lucid dream practice and had this big breakthrough. Basically his nightmares stopped. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, he emailed me with that quote. I integrated more in four days and four years of therapy. Um, and I emailed back and I was like, oh, mate, can I put that on my website? That's such a nice, uh, uh, you know, testimonial end up on the website. And then I kind of saw him around for the next couple of years at Samaling and places like that. But, you know, uh, not a lot. A couple of years later, he emailed me again. And he'd spent the last couple of years training to be a mindfulness uh, teacher and had started doing the Buddhist chaplaincy training too and was living at a veteran center offering uh, mindfulness courses and kind of counseling sessions and peer support to veterans who were struggling with PTSD. And he had started running these retreats um, up next door to Samaling. So not actually in Samaling Buddhist Centre in Scotland, but literally about like 100 metres from the centre, um, there's a place called Pure Lands Retreat Centre, which is kind of, um, uh, can be rented by anyone, Buddhist or, or, or not. So he was renting that retreat centre and was running these veterans mindfulness retreats. And he said, will you come and teach the same stuff you taught me to this group of veterans? And I did agree, but I was like, mate, you're the only veteran I've ever worked with. I know it worked for you, but it could be a one-off. Uh, please just don't, don't get your hopes up. But yeah, I'd love to, sounds really fun. So went to this veterans retreat and taught the lucid dreaming stuff. And yeah, for some, it really worked. Of the group of maybe 15 or 20, about five of them had a real breakthrough with the lucid dreaming. Um, but the rest didn't so much, but five of them did. So we thought there's some success there. Um, there's some benefit there. But what I did notice at that first retreat was how those who, the veterans who maybe didn't benefit so much from the lucid dreaming, what they did benefit from, which was the other things offered the retreat, breath work, yoga nidra, deep relaxation, qigong, um, uh, physical yoga, and mindless meditation. And each year when I went back to that retreat to offer the lucid dreaming stuff, I started to integrate more of the other things that I saw really helped them, like more of the yoga nidra, more of the deep relaxation, more of the sleep awareness and kind of insomnia stuff, because a lot of them had such fractured sleep that the first port of call would just help them get more than three or four hours sleep. And then you can start looking at the dream yoga, lucid dreaming practices. So over the kind of five years from then, I started training in those modalities. In, so I did the yoga nidra teacher training. I did the breath, body, mind, breath work and chagung training. Um, I did kind of PTSD masterclasses and had training in uh, uh, trauma therapeutic work and stuff like that because I thought, well, I'd love to be able to offer uh, by myself, have all the tools within me to offer what I saw work so well with the veterans. And that eventually led to me to apply and get this fund called the Winston Churchill Fellowship where they uh, kind of give you they gave me some money to go around America and Canada to study best practice in mindfulness-based PTSD treatments for veterans. So a bit of a mouthful. Basically, it meant that I got to study and research with the kind of top tier of people who are working with veterans in the US um, and do their, do their training courses too. And when I came back and I wrote that up 
and made a little kind of mini documentary about it. That really forms the basis of what became those five pillars, you know, the five powerful practices that make up the book. And the book is based on the six week course that I created. So, you know, from that initial veterans retreat to kind of five years later, so this is about kind of four years ago now, then I started running uh, myself these veterans courses, uh, either in six week or weekends or, or um, online retreats, for example. And they include lucid dreaming, but lucid dreaming is the fifth pillar. So it's the last thing to get to. First one is sleep awareness. So learning how sleep works and specifically how you sleep. Essentially, it's about becoming your own sleep track. You know, people have these sleep tracker things that they check. By the way, those sleep trackers are really inaccurate. Even the best ones, like an aura ring, which is really expensive, is only about 70% accurate. So you've got about 30 to 40% of the time, they are not giving you correct information. And there is actually a disorder now, I can't remember what it's called, but a, a, a psychiatrist told me about it, of people, it's basically neurosis caused by people getting too overly concerned with their sleep tracker data. So really take that with a pinch of salt. But I say become your own sleep tracker. So when you wake up in the morning, keeping a nocturnal journal, how do I feel upon awakening? When did I go to bed? Did I wake up in the night? Any dreams or nightmares I had? You know, become your own sleep tracker. It's the first thing. Then they, you know, essentially knowledge is power. We can be empowered by the knowledge of how we sleep. And to be honest, how can we dream, no pun intended, of making changes to the third of our life that we spend asleep if we know nothing about sleep? You know, we leave the education system in this country, in the UK at least, knowing nothing about how we spend one third of our life. Not even doctors, you know, with full, absolute respect to doctors. My stepsister, Holly, has just become a doctor. And she confirmed that in her six-year training, she had two hours on sleep in six years. And yet we know that one in 10 of the conditions uh, of people who come to GPs will be directly linked to insufficient sleep. And yet the GP has had two hours on it. Now, the two hours that Holly had, she sent me the, um, the PowerPoint, actually. And it's pretty good, two hours, but it was two hours. Now, let's consider that most GPs maybe did their training 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago before any of this new sleep science was there through no fault of their own. If you go to a, a general, general practitioner doctor with a sleep problem, most of them don't know about sleep. So we'll either medicate you or give you something like sleep hygiene tips or CBT, which really does not work very well for stress or trauma affected sleep. So the first pillar is about learning about how we sleep. The second pillar is uh, deep rest and relaxation, essentially yoga nidra, hypnagogic mindfulness practices, how to move into a deep state of parasympathetic emphasis, because most of us are so charged up in the sympathetic fight or flight system, especially people with uh, stress or trauma in their lives. Um, the third pillar is slow, is breath work, but a very specific form of breath work called coherent breathing, which is breathing at the nominal rate of five breaths a minute. And this one's really fascinating when I came across it. There is an optimal human breath rate for 90% of human beings alive. That's, I was like, bullshit, bullshit. There's so many different types of pranayama breath work. There can't be an optimal human breath rate. Turns out there is. Unless you're well over six foot, which is that other 10% of people, most people six foot or under in height, um, breathing at 5.1 breaths a minute synchronizes perfectly the electrical rhythms of the brain, heart, and the lungs. It is the perfect human breath rate. When you breathe at 5.1 breaths a minute, everything that can be measured in the lab becomes optimized. Brain function, optimized. Heart rate variability, optimized. Uh, uh, blood flow, optimized. Blood pressure, optimized everything is is optimized in this state um so it's kind of shocking that i had never heard of this before 
And surely nowadays we breathe at about 15 to 20 breaths a minute. So breathing at five breaths a minute, how can that be normal? How can that be an optimal human breath rate? I'm just gonna use a slide to get a slide up so I get this right, but this is very interesting. Slide up for me, sorry, you won't be able to see this. You can share it if you like. Uh, yeah, okay. So as we can see on this slide, in 2020, the average American breath rate is 15 to 20 breaths a minute. And that's not just Americans, that's all kind of, uh, well, people in the Western world, actually, because that's where they do these, where they're doing these breathwork studies, 15 to 20 breaths a minute. And we think that's normal, right? That is very, very fast. You know, our grandparents and great grandparents did not breathe at 15 to 20 breaths a minute. In 1929, the average breath rate is 4.9 breaths a minute. That is like 70%, 75% slower than we breathe today. That is crazy. In 1939, it's still super low, 5.3 breaths a minute. So 1939, they're breathing almost coherently, brilliantly. 1950, it goes up to 6.9 breaths a minute. Interesting theory on this. What happened between 39 and 50? Well, in many ways, the trauma of the Second World War, some people have said, that might boost that breath rate because we know that anxiety is directly linked to breathing faster. Even in the 80s, when I was born, the breath rate 7.8 breaths a minute. So what has happened in the last 40 years? So more than double the average breath rate. Again, the, the medics won't say this, but breath work theorists, uh, breath work practitioners theorize possibly the same thing as doubled the rates of diabetes, heart disease, strokes, cancers, certain cancers. Um, perhaps it's linked. Why would it be linked? Because of this slide here. Uh, another slide for those uh, who are watching. So this is from um, Stephen Elliott, who's the man who really pioneered the work into coherent breathing. You can see that anytime we're breathing at more than 10 breaths a minute, we're in mild sympathetic activation. Once you get up to 15 and 20, you're into severe fight or flight activation, which leads to the audacious statement that the majority of humanity alive today are in a constant state of low level fight or flight activation simply because of the way we breathe. Well, what's wrong with being fight or flight all the time? Yeah, sometimes you need to be in it to fight something or to run from something, but we are constantly in this state for a fight that never comes and a thing to flee from that never arrives. When we are in this state of chronic sympathetic activation, what happens? Cortisol is released into the bloodstream, which we know leads to the buildup of certain plaques in the bloodstream that creates um, uh, kind of a lining around the arteries, which eventually gets uh, thicker and thicker and which can lead to strokes. It also leads to uh, free radicals building up in the cell, the kind of optimization of cells. Essentially, it's like imagine being in a car and having the accelerator pedal on, but the handbrake on. What does that do to, your, to, the, to, the, to the car itself, to the engine, to the clutch? It's really, really bad for us. And we're constantly in that state anytime we're breathing at more than 10 breaths a minute. As you see on the, on the chart here, once you hit five breaths a minute, you're in this perfect autonomic balance. And then breathing slower uh, isn't bad for you, but it actually brings you more into parasympathetic. So like before a board meeting, you wouldn't want to be breathing at like two breaths a minute. You're going to be super, super, super chilled. Uh, but if you breathe at five breaths a minute, it's actually really good. It kind of optimizes us. I just had those slides up actually in case I got the, uh, uh, the facts and figures wrong, but there we go. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, very interesting. Now I'm wondering if you could, uh, in a certain sense, demonstrate the difference between a 5.1 
yeah rest per minute rate and you know 15 plus rest per minute that you know we, we, we normally be breathing in it seems sure. so 15 plus breaths a minute is what i'm doing now i'm excited i'm talking to steve i'm like oh, bah, 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 bah. definitely i'm not breathing coherently um now when we teach the coherent breathing see well how do we breathe at five breaths a minute we usually use a chime track uh, which you can find on my website, charliemorley.com forward slash wake up to sleep. Loads of free resources there, including free downloads of these chime tracks. They go kind of bing, 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 but more harmonious. And you follow them as you breathe in and you follow them as you breathe out. 20 minutes a day of coherent breathing. So breathing it at around five breaths a minute has such a powerful effect on the autonomic nervous system that insomnia, that uh, symptoms of PTSD, nightmares and insomnia are reduced within days so you give people about seven days of practicing this on about day three or four many people will start to see changes in their sleep reduction in ptsd symptoms reduction in panic panic attacks during the day the people who did this research and who i trained with are not hippy dippy people these are mainstream psychiatrists pat gerbarg from new york medical school and her husband richard brown who's associate professor at um columbia i believe you know, mainstream psychiatrists. So when these guys say, out of all the medication we can offer you for PTSD, the one that is non-addictive with no side effects that you cannot overdose on and is, in our view, one of the most effective PTSD treatments there is, when they say it's simply breathing at five breaths a minute, for severe PTSD, they say 40 minutes a day if possible, but 20 to 40 minutes a day, people take note. And they have, and they have this brilliant foundation, the breath, body, mind, um, and they work with first responders. Um, they've worked uh, with people being released from slavery in Sudan. Um, they work with the UN. They are brilliant practitioners. They do a lot of stuff for free and a lot of brilliant trainings. Um, I've seen amazing uh, iPhone footage of Dr. Richard Brown in Sudan. And you see people walking through this gate with like babies on their backs carrying firewood. It turns out they're walking into a UN safe compound. And then you see him through several translators teaching them the breathing, the, the five breaths a minute breathing. And also in breath, body, mind, they include certain Qigong movements. Now they don't call them Qigong because they've medicalized it. They call it um, uh, like mindful movement upon the breath. It's, it's definitely Qigong. Very simple movements like breathing in. Two, three, four, Breathing out, two, three, four. And those listening on audio, I'm circling, I'm moving my arms up above the head and then circling them around uh, to be on the Dantian again, which is really good for people with PTSD because disembodiment and dissociation are two of the side effects, common side effects of PTSD. So stuff where you move your body with your breath is really helpful. And uh, yeah, in this video footage, he's teaching these people who've just been released from slavery. And I was watching it thinking like, you know, the UN could have called in anyone to do this stuff. The fact he's there doing this, a completely free, non-medicalized, no side effects treatment that you can give to people who've literally just been released from slavery. It's very, very powerful footage. Um, and they've got loads of research papers, over 100 research papers between them. Um, so please Google them. Pat Gerbarg and Dr. Richard Brown, brilliant, brilliant practitioners. Now you're asking about what does the breath rate uh, look like? I've, we don't need the chimes. I can, I'm pretty sure I can do it with my voice. And we can do this along just for, for a minute or so. So first of all, going from 15 to 20 breaths a minute down to five is like really scratching, put, putting the brakes on that accelerator pedal. So we want to just 
moving slowly so i'll uh, i'll move us with our uh with my voice in gently so if you can breathe in through the nose and breathe out through either the nose or the mouth um if you can avoid breathing in through the mouth that's good unless you've got a blocked nose or something mouth breathing uh, actually quite interesting there are lots of detriment to mouth breathing but so just sitting eyes open or closed either is fine you can be reading a book when you do this you can walk down the street when you do this the reason it works so well with veterans because so many of them mean kind of forced into trying mindfulness. Now, when someone's in a deep state of trauma, asking them to sit alone in silence for 20 minutes is not the best medicine. And yet we're still doing it. It's like, give them yoga nidra, where you're lying down on the floor with a blanket over you. And crucially, there's someone's voice in your ear guiding you into the practice or give them a chime track so they can listen to the harmony moving up and down. You know, it's, it's, the one thing missing in my book, conspicuously absent, is standard mindfulness practice. Because for people who've experienced high levels of trauma, in my opinion, it is not the best uh, medicine to offer. So, Presumably because it brings them into contact with the, um, with the uh, dysregulated nervous system and the traumatic memories without any uh, t tools other than just bare awareness to regulate yeah. those experiences. That's yeah. presumably why. Is that, was that, is yeah. that fair to say? Absolutely. And also at a wider scale, and this is going to piss off some mindfulness teachers, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, they can they can meditate on that. Don't worry. <laughs> um, because we're all breathing so fast, when we ask someone to sit and watch their breath, we're basically saying sit there and hyperventilate for 20 minutes. So important that we help people slow their breath down before we then ask them to sit and meditate. Back in the day when Buddha said, watch your breath, now, if the average American breath rate in 1939 was 4.5, we can assume that two and a half thousand years ago, it's probably, it, it definitely wasn't 15 breaths a minute either. So, you know, back in the day, asking someone to sit and watch their breath was very good advice. Nowadays, when we ask people to sit and watch their breath, until we've slowed it from 15 to 20 breaths a minute, a lot of the potential benefits of mindfulness are missing. However, what they have found is people with a sustained mindfulness practice breathe super slow anyway. So it seems like the body moves us into that state. So this is just about people at the beginning of their mindfulness path. Anyway, let's do this breathing. So going from 15 to 20 breaths a minute down to five breaths a minute is a bit like pressing on that brake pedal very fast. So we want to ease ourselves in. So before we get to the chime track, which sounds like this, by the way, just so you know what to expect. Before we get to that chime track, I'll ease us in with my voice and account, and then we'll move into the chimes. And there's nothing to do except following the chimes. Again, this isn't really about clearing the mind or, or not being with thoughts or anything like that. It's simply breathing in as the chimes go up and breathing out as the chimes go down. That's it. This is a breath work practice that leads to a state of mindfulness rather than a mindfulness practice itself. Okay, so breathing in through the nose and either out through the nose or the mouth, either is fine. Breathing in, two, three, breathing out, two, three, breathing in, two, three, breathing out, two, three, breathing in, two, three, four, 
Breathing out. Two, three, four. Breathing in as the chimes go up. And breathing out as the chimes go down. off as it naturally may. Just bring it back to the chimes. Breathing out as they go down. And in as they go up. beneficial, you can try breathing a little more into the belly than into the top of the chest. If it helps, you can place a hand or two on the belly. Breathing in, the belly expands. Breathing out, the belly releases. Just another minute or so, guiding yourself with the track.
And as you hear the track fade out, just following it as it goes. Allowing yourself to rest in stillness once the track finishes. And then just sitting and noticing. Allowing the breath to return to its natural rhythm. Just checking in with the body. How does my body feel now? Maybe the same, maybe different. How does my mind feel now? Maybe the same, maybe different. And opening your eyes if they were closed, stretching your body if it feels good to do so, and returning to fully wakeful awareness. So that was a little kind of four or five minutes of coherent breathing, and it really is that simple. Now, it's not that it's, you know, there are loads of other breath practices which are better for different things and better for different people, but as a universal breath practice that you cannot overdose on, that has zero contraindications that you can teach to your, your granny or your kid, coherent breathing is so, so good and so, so accessible. Is breathing slower even better? For some things, yeah, I personally like to breathe at two breaths a minute, but that's more because of the, the kind of benefits you get at that different pranayama level. But five breaths a minute, you can't overdose on it. The aim is to breathe at five breaths a minute at all times. You can see it work. When I first found this, I was like, uh, yeah, well, I was just a bit arrogant. I was like, oh, I lived in a Buddhist center for eight years. If this was so good, why wouldn't we all be breathing at five breaths a minute? We should know. Turns out that breath rate is found in Buddhism. I had just not come across those teachings. Um, and I started doing it for 20 minutes a day before my Nundro practice, uh, before a guru, a guru Yoga practice. And it was transforming my practice. I found that 20 minutes of coherent breathing could bring me to a deeper level of one-pointed mindful awareness than two hours of shine or even some shamatha, even some other passionate practices. It was very quickly bringing me into that state. And now I, it's 20 minutes of any practice I do, whether it's the new practice or the guru yoga, I start with 20 minutes of coherent breathing uh, and try and keep that breath rate actually throughout the uh, Vajrayana practices too. It's really effective and just try it. If it works for you and makes you feel um, more mindful, more aware, more attuned, keep doing it. If not, forget it. <laughs> oh, thank you, Charlie. That was, that was fantastic. And uh, those chimes are available, you said, to download on your site. So of course I'll include that, charliemolly.com. <laughs> I'll include that link in the show notes. People can can get that if they like. Thank you for guiding that. Um, you know, this, uh, this book, Wake Up to Sleep, uh, you know, in, in it, you say that the primary obstacle to sleep is not, um, is, is actually a dysregulated nervous system. Absolutely. So that, that was sort of your gateway. And there's three aspects of, of a dysregulated nervous system that you list include stress, trauma, and inflammation. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these practices are nervous system regulating practices yeah, and you've yeah. listed the five sleep awareness deep relaxation the breath work working with nightmares transforming and understanding them and, and also lucid dreaming mm -hmm. i'd like to ask you a bit about that but something that comes to mind in tumo uh, which uh, many of my uh, guests have discussed tumo this uh, inner heat practice of uh, tibetan buddhist uh, completion stage yoga 
one of the features of Tuma, of course, are these extended breath holds, mm. actually. And uh, it's been my observation that achieving breath holds, which of course is something that occurs in lots of different breath practices, um, can be achieved sort of two, two main, two ways. One of them is to use tension to sort of impose, to hold the breath actually, to impose a kind of which, uh, a breath hold, which seems to actually, oddly enough, add stress to the system. And if one pursues that sort of a breath hold, then one's capacity to hold one's breath actually gra gradually reduces because the stress in the system increases. And there's accessing longer breath holds via a down regulation or a, a regulation of the nervous system so that actually the breath holds in a certain sense are a consequence of a deeply uh, regulated or relaxed nervous system as opposed to um, an imposition on the nervous system. I'm wondering if you, um, uh, you've mentioned there two breaths a minute, I'm wondering if you could, uh, of course in, in um, Tumo, even less, I'm wondering if you could comment a little on that side of things, the, the long extended breath holds that one finds in certain uh, Tibetan yogic practices and other um, pranayama practices, uh, and how that might uh, um, affect the nervous system and what's going on there in those extre more extreme breath hold practices. Sure. Um, just to clarify, when I was talking about the two breaths a minute, that's with no breath hold. So it's like a whatever it is, 15 second inhale, 15 second or uh, yeah, that must be right if it's two breaths a minute. Um, yeah, there's no there's no breath holding in that. That's just about bring to a very, very slow, deep uh, breathing rhythm, which strangely I found helps to increase the breath holds of certain other practices, like you mentioned with Tuma. Um, I don't know enough about those practices really, or enough about pranayama to talk about it. But what I often say when people ask about um, the breath work in the new book, they say, oh, is it like the Wim Hof stuff? And I say, no, it's pretty much the opposite of Wim Hof. Rather than like really kind of vigorous breathing, it's like very slow, gentle breathing, and yet leads to the same form of regulation. It's as if certain practices kind of short circuit the nervous system by creating a lot of stress, which then leads to a kind of a boom and a resetting into a default mode. Uh, and the other is to do it very gently through just gradually, 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 gradually. Now working with people, working with traumatized populations, there is no way I'm gonna teach them something, anything like the Tumo breath or Wim Hof's kind of version of some of the aspects that uh, that people call, uh, say as Tumo and stuff like that. Um, it, there's too much risk of, of trigger. And also a lot of the people I work with have physical disabilities too, due to their injuries or some, sometimes linked to their mental health issues too. Uh, whereas coherent breathing is a really safe way to do it. Very unlikely to be triggered uh, by coherent breathing, whereas some of those, the breath hold, especially for people who've experienced trauma, think what we do when something scary happens. <laughs> breath holds actually aren't that good when people are working with trauma because they may have held their breath during the sexual assault or whatever may have happened. Um, so there's too many variables there. I think those practices are brilliant. And it's interesting, you've, you've mentioned the two more actually from this new practice that I was uh, mentioning before. But uh, I think when working with these populations and especially for sleep, um, yeah, the, the mm. really slow, gentle breathing is, is better. And the thing you said about sleep there, I can sum it up that sleep is a natural phenomena that will occur in the absence of stresses that prevent it from occurring. 
all of the sleep hygiene stuff that's offered on the NHS and all these books. Like the only thing you won't find on a book are the sleep hygiene stuff. I've got it like in an appendix at the back going like if nothing else works and you want some sleep hygiene, here it goes. If sleep hygiene tips worked, we wouldn't have the epidemic of sleeplessness that we now have. Oh, no coffee after lunch. Don't look at your phone half an hour before bed. It's like, yeah, if you've got normal levels of stress, which after the last two years and God, the situation in the world now, who's got normal levels of stress? But offering sleep hygiene tip to someone with trauma is like offering a, a plaster to someone who's been in a car crash. You know, it is not, it's not going to touch the sides. You need a much stronger medicine. And also sleep hygiene tips, kind of every time you use them, you're creating a subtle um, limiting belief that sleep needs props to happen. I will only be able to sleep if I haven't looked at my phone, if I haven't had coffee after lunch, um, if my room's completely dark, if the temperature's right. Like all those things can be helpful. So if you're using sleep hygiene tips and they're helping, absolutely keep doing them. But what I've found is when working with people with trauma, you need a stronger medicine. You have to work with a dysregulated nervous system because to go to sleep, you have to be in parasympathetic, parasympathetic emphasis. So you can have done all the uh, sleep hygiene tips you like, but until you move from sympathetic to parasympathetic, or at least to a balance of the autonomic nervous system, you will be staring at the ceiling till morning. There is no way to sleep if you're in fight or flight. It's impossible. There's too much adrenaline and cortisol in the bloodstream. So it seems crazy that people haven't already seen, seen the main battle we need to, uh, sorry, the main um, shadow we need to embrace in, um, in our work with sleeplessness is a dysregulated nervous system. You know, that's what, if, if you learn to regulate your nervous system, you can sleep in a bloody nightclub. You can sleep in, you can choose to fall asleep. You can learn to actually fall asleep on purpose, um, which is a very good skill to have too. You're addressing here PTSD, not only in a military context, uh, but also in um, general traumas that people may encounter outside of that context. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you mentioned your own introduction to trauma. You say, I was 17 when I experienced my first trauma nightmare after taking a misguidedly large dose of ketamine while tripping on a misguidedly large dose of LSD, yep. I had a full on tunnel of light entering the void near death experience. Although nowadays I might respond to such an episode in a very different way. As a teenager, it totally overwhelmed my ability to cope. And within days, the nightmares and night terrors began. They recurred weekly for the next few months, then started coming at other times too, as did the flashbacks and panic attacks that had me hiding in the toilet cubicles at school. Yeah. At night, I would try to stay awake, too scared to sleep, but eventually sleep would come, and with it, the nightmares and the terror that would crush me. Looking back on it now, it seems such an obvious case of trauma and PTSD, but at the time, I'm not sure if I even knew what that meant. Mm. All I knew was that I had fucked up my brain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And uh, you write very uh, 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 in very great detail about overcoming that through actually your lucid dream practice. And we, we discussed actually in the last episode, and I'd encourage people to go back to that, to learn a bit more about that specific use of lucid dreaming, to confront nightmares, to confront mm. fears, to confront traumas, and indeed shadows, as you wrote about uh, in your book on the shadow also. Perhaps we'll have to have another interview about that. Yeah, very fascinating stuff. Outside of the trauma context, these deep breath holes that we see in Tomo and Pranayama, et cetera, et cetera, what, What's your take on what's going on there? Yes, you've, you've made the point that different pranayamas are suited for different people for different purposes and breath holds for people with trauma, not so smart. But what's the point of those generally? What do you think is the point in Tumor, for example, 
of doing that long breath hold. Why is that done? I believe from what little I know of Tumo, it's about bringing energy into the central channel. So it's not just a breath hold, it's a breath hold four fingers beneath the navel where you're pushing down from the top and sucking up through the perineum, through the perineum or perineum. Um, and that's creating this kind of squeezing energy. And also it's not just that, it's that the breath hold is drawing focus to the place where the visualization is. You know, the big difference when I see on kind of Joe Rogan and stuff, and they're saying that the Wim Hof method is Tumo. And I'm like, the, the, saying the Wim Hof method is Tumo is like saying someone who shoots uh, penalties all day plays soccer. You know, one of the coolest things about soccer and football might be scoring a goal. So if you're shooting penalties all day, you score the goal. But also it's about passing and defense and corners and throw-ins and offsides and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think there's a lot uh, that is not Tumo. And in fact, Wim Hof is brilliant. Wim Hof has never said he teaches Tumo. He, other people have said that. Uh, he clearly, he knows exactly what Tumo is and has great respect for it. Um, I've now gone off on a rant about Wim Hof you're talking about. Oh, about the, uh, the breath holds. Yeah. So uh, I think it's about bringing energy into the central channel. I think it's about compressing the energy down to the specific point where you've got the visualization of the deity uh, and whether it's the deity and the flame within the deity central channel, which then becomes your central channel. Um, I think the breath hold has a big effect physiologically. I mean, we know from the short breath hold that you have in the very well-known four, seven, eight breath breathing in for four, holding the breath for seven, breathing out for eight, which is in the book, which is a very safe breath hold to do. The extended exhalation is because if you breathe out for longer than you breathe in, you move into parasympathetic, parasympathetic emphasis, so really good to relax. But the breath hold for seven in the middle, the reason you hold the breath is because it lightly raises CO2 levels in the bloodstream. And we think that it's all about oxygenation. It's actually not quite that simple. A, a light increase of CO2 in the bloodstream means that when you do eventually release the breath on the exhale, you actually get a deeper level of relaxation. So if that's what's happening in just a seven count breath hold, we can assume that perhaps the same physiological thing is occurring with the very long breath holds of Tumo. Um, but I think it's far more about moving energy into the central channel. Um, I mean, the, the purpose of the, the, the Tibetan view on why you have a lucid dream is nothing to do with reactivation of the prefrontal cortex in REM, during, REM dreaming sleep. It is specifically about drawing energy into the central channel. If you draw energy into the central channel before sleep, during sleep, or in the REM dream sleep uh, state, you will have a lucid dream. Tumo is the first, it is the, of the six yogas, it's the one that says, lights the fire to all the others. I mean, I remember when I first started teaching uh, lucid dreaming you know, 14 years ago, and someone at the Buddhist center said, but, but how can you have lucid dreams? You haven't learned Tumo. And I remember thinking, what do you mean? And I realized that actually that was, I think that was a limiting self-belief, but in a lot of the teachings, the, the, the fuel of the fire you need for the other yogas is created by the Tumo itself. And a lot of that is about bringing the energy into the central channel, which as a side effect will lead to lucid dreams, as a side effect will lead to uh, bliss and clarity, as a side effect will um, burn up the desire that that kind of energetically might be situated uh, in the central channel from, you know, from what little I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. You know, there are so many avenues into lucid dreaming. And in your in your books, you, you teach many of them, uh, rather, rather, in fact, encyclopedic, uh, your books are on that topic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there are so many, um, so many um, uh, from the, the techniques of Stephen LeBerg to, you know, your, your own techniques, which you've innovated actually several techniques also in, in that, in that area. 
you're a real compiler too. You go and you study and you train with all the different experts and you compile, etc. as well as adding your own innovation and insights. And then you teach a lot of people, which is a sort of uh, digestion process, I'm sure it must be. What's your kind of, um, I suppose, I'm not asking you to summarize all the methods, but what's, what's your um, impression as the techniques that are perhaps most commonly used and perhaps most effectively employed? They may not be the two same thing, the two, two the same things. And also some of these more, should we say, uh, esoteric aspects, such as entering uh, lucid dreaming through uh, uh, tumor practice, opening up the various different centers, for example, or you know, holding uh, uh, awareness at different chakra points and so on and so forth. So I'm curious, uh, what's your take on those? Are they more, are they substantially more effective than what we, what we think of in sort of Stephen LeBurge territory? Sure. So I think the most effective lucid dreaming technique there is, is what I call lucid dream planning which is essentially deciding what you want to do in your lucid dream. The how of lucid dreaming is obviously important. You need to know how to keep a dream diary, do reality checks, do the wake back to bed technique, all this kind of stuff. But to be honest, all of it counts for nothing unless you have a really good reason why. The why is the most important thing. I have seen people on retreats with zero, almost no lucid dreaming techniques under their belt because it's the first day of the retreat. We haven't, all they've got is like keeping a dream diary, but they've gone to sleep with a dream plan because the first technique I teach on the retreats is actually the opposite of when, probably when, when you were on the retreat, Holy Isle, I used to teach dream planning almost last. Now I teach it first. And what dream planning is, is a three-step process of, um, first of all, planning what you want to do in your next lucid dream. So you know, have a good reason why just to kind of look around isn't a good reason. You know, the reason to have a lucid dream should, I say it should, should turn you on psychologically. Unless your dream plan makes you so excited that you want to go to bed early, it ain't worth doing. So I'm talking big things, meeting God in the lucid dream, calling out for your inner child to embrace them and help heal your, the sexual trauma you experienced as a kid. Um, you know, asking a big question like, how can I be of most benefit? To the, to the space behind the dream and receiving an answer, going into the lucid dream state and doing deity self-manifestation so that you literally turn into the deity. You look down and you are wearing the robes of Guru Rinpoche. You know, if, if people are listening to this and they, they got, they're getting, maybe not goosebumps, but they're getting excited by this, good. That is the most important practice. And the, first, the time I saw it most clearly was a woman whose dream is included in the third book, the one you mentioned about the shadow, Dreaming Through Darkness, first night of a retreat in Wales, no lucid dream experience at all. Uh, I think the homework for that night would just be like trying to remember your dreams. But we had done dream planning and her dream plan was to meet her seven year old self. And I remember I was walking around, we, we sorry, how we do it. Um, you have a piece of A4 paper. At the uh, top, you write out the lucid dream you would like to have. So she had written, in my next lucid dream, I want to call out to meet my seven year old self the version of me that was sexually abused as a child. When she arrives, I will embrace her in my arms, tell her it was not her fault and integrate any and all of my childhood trauma. Now that is a very specific dream plan. And I, I probably helped with some of the wording there. It's like writing a hypnotic script. Words are very, very powerful, select them very, very carefully. So you write this kind of script of, in an ideal world, in the perfect lucid dream, this is what it would look like. So first of all, the plan. The second stage is the picture. So draw 
or symbolize somehow the lucid dream you'd like to have. So in this case, it was literally a little stick, I, I believe, from what I remember, a little stick woman picture of her, and then a speech bubble calling out seven-year-old self, and then this little girl version of her, and then an arrow, and then showing her hugging, you know, just a basic symbolic representation of what you would like to see. But because for most people, dreams happen pictorially, visually, uh, in, in the kind of visual imagination, and drawing a picture helps create that bridge that brings you one step closer to the lucid dream. And then the third stage of dream planning is to write your Sankalpa. The Sankalpa is a Sanskrit word that I learned from the Yoga Nidra world, which means will or intent. So if her dream plan was in my next lucid dream, I call out to meet my seven-year-old self who experienced sexual trauma and embrace her with love, blah, blah, blah. Um, the Sankalpa would be seven-year-old self now. And the Sankalpa is the action or statement that you engage or call out once you are lucid. So that night when she was lucid, that's what happened. So she went to sleep with no other technique other than that deep wish. Ah, oh, my heart's desire would be to help integrate that sexual trauma from childhood that is still weighing me down and having a, a harmful effect on my interactions and life. So she just went to sleep with that deep, um, heartfelt desire to have that lucid dream, no other techniques. And she got lucid that night and it happened, but it also happened in a different way. And the reason I use this as an example is because this story sums up so many things about lucid dreaming that are, that are good to hit on. Um, she did become lucid that night, brilliant, first night ever. She had never had a lucid dream before. So her first ever lucid dream, she was dealing with sex. She wanted to work with sexual trauma. Great advice. Who knows, we could be dead tomorrow. Your first lucid dream might be your only lucid dream before you die the next day. So don't waste it looking around. People are, oh, my first lucid dream, I just like walked around. I'm like, fuck man, don't do that. Go big, you know, you're in this space of emptiness. What a sacred land, what a sacred space you're in. This is dream yoga, go for it. So she became lucid and she called out, seven-year-old self, nothing happens. Called out second time, nothing happens. She's good, she carries on, something about maybe the rule of three, who knows, she calls out a third time, seven-year-old self, come to me. The dream blocks her. There is an intelligence within the lucid dream that is not a lesser intelligence than the waking state, but a higher intelligence. Because you're not just dealing with that top 10% of the iceberg, the conscious mind, you're in that 90% real wisdom, uh, storehouse of wisdom and consciousness and awareness. Um, so there was an intelligence thing that blocked her. It didn't give her her seven-year-old self. And I was like, well, what happened then? She said, a door appeared. So in the middle of the dream, this door appears just standing there. And on the door, there's a sign. And the sign reads, caution. I was like, fuck, the intelligence of the dream. You know, it gave her a door saying, caution. Be careful doing this work. Be careful if you want to unlock, you know, childhood sexual trauma. Are you sure you're ready for this? Be careful. And she was so sweet. She said, I was in the dream and I thought, what would Charlie say to do? And I thought, I think he'd say to go through the door. And I was like, yeah, I would. You know, if you're ready for it, go for it. You're in a safe space. Very hard to be re-traumatized in a lucid dream, by the way. Far easier to be re-traumatized in the waking state with a therapist who's not holding the space properly than in the lucid dream state. In the lucid dream state, very difficult to do damage to your mind. You'll just get chucked out or you'll wake up. You know, there's, a, there's, an, there's an ejector seat in the lucid dream, the waking state, there often isn't. So she said, she checked the door and she thought if the door's locked, I'll see that, okay, a locked door with caution on it, I'm not ready to look at this, seek professional help, 
you know, don't go any further. But she said the door was ajar and she thought, okay, I'm ready to do this. So she pushes the door, she steps through. And as she steps through, this building forms with like three stories. And she realizes intuitively that each story, each uh, floor of the building has a different part of the abuse that occurred to her. And on the ground floor, there was a room full of vomit. And this is a trigger warning. I'm going to explain some of the abuse that happened to her. Um, there was something that happened where she was forced to eat till she was sick. So she instantly knew what it meant, the room full of vomit. It was a symbolic representation of the abuse. And again, so, so beautiful of her. She said, oh, and I walked into the room full of vomit and I thought, well, Charlie always says you should hug your demons in the lucid dream. Anything scary, it's a, it's a wounded part of your mind. So literally hug it, show it love. I thought, how do I hug a room full of vomit? And then I thought, oh, it's all symbolic. It's okay. I'll just walk into the room and hug it with my mind. So she walks into the room full of vomit and just calls out, I set you free. It wasn't your fault. I set you free. She had this big energetic thing that happens, boom, and then she wakes up. And the next day, just the, the privilege of being in the dream circle and hearing her for the first time tell that dream. And I was like, how do you feel now? And she goes, different. I feel just... I feel just different. And you're like, fuck, am I witnessing, you know, this, this profound integration? What a privilege. Anyway, uh, I kept in contact with her, obviously. And um, later she told me, well, I asked if I could include that dream in the new book. And she said, yeah, but I want you to make it clear that that lucid dream didn't heal my trauma. And I was like, oh, okay, that's, and I'm a little bit deflated. I'm like, oh, okay, why do you say that? And she said, it wasn't like I woke up from the lucid dream and suddenly what happened to me didn't affect me. But what happened was when I woke up from the lucid dream, all the barriers that stood in the way of me seeking help just dissolved. She said, suddenly seeing a therapist seemed like a really good idea. Suddenly talking to the family members involved seemed like a really good idea. Suddenly looking at how I could integrate the trauma through my body in the waking state seemed like a really good idea. And she said it, so it wasn't that she like woke up and was cured, but when she woke up, the barriers that stood in the way from her seeking help that would lead to a curative response were removed. And the last time I spoke to her, I also found out something else. That was the only lucid dream she ever had. Never had a lucid dream again. And I was a bit like, why you had such great success? You know, in my mind, I was like, why you had such great success? She said, you know, I came to the workshop with something in mind. I heard that lucid dreaming could be used to integrate trauma. I came to the workshop. I learned how to do it. I did just that. So, of course, I'd love her to come back and continue the training, but she came in for a reason and she did it. So that is the most powerful lucid dreaming technique there is, having a good reason why. There are hundreds of people I've met who they've read all the books. They're doing all the reality checks. They're doing all this stuff before bed. And I say, so what's your, and they say, oh, I'm still not getting lucid. And I'm like, what's your dream plan? Well, I just, when I have a lucid dream, just be cool. Dude, that is not enough. That is not enough. If you want to get lucid, have a good reason why. Your dreamer has been dreaming for a lot longer than you've been trying to come in there and be lucid. So every time you try a lucid dreaming technique, you're knocking on the door. And sometimes the dream will open it and say, hey, come in, have a lucid dream. But when you do a dream plan, it's knocking on the door and stating your reason for entry. Knock, knock, I'd like to come in to heal my trauma. If you say that, boom, the door's gonna open. Just knocking, like the technique's not enough. Knock and state your purpose. Knock, knock, I wanna integrate my PTSD from my time in Iraq. Boom, the door will open far, far quicker than just knocking with the techniques. So yeah, that's what I'd say. Mm. Oh, brilliant. Thank you, uh, Charlie, excellent. 
I wonder if we uh, we're coming now to I think to an end of our of our conversation. It's been so fascinating. We must do this again and not yeah, man, well, not in four years' time, uh, and we can do it, <laughs> I think maybe even quite soon. Uh, you have a wonderful book on shadow work and um, many uh, fascinating anecdotes there uh, that perhaps we could discuss. Um, but perhaps I'll ask you one more question. Sure. We were talking in another another context, um, you and I, and discussing this idea of an obstacle year. Mm. An obstacle year. This uh, every 12 year uh, cycle, I suppose, um, in the uh, it's often talked about in Tibetan astrology. And at that time we were talking, you had mentioned that you, you were just ending your obstacle year. Um, I'm wondering about that. <laughs> would, you, would you talk a little about, um, would you talk a little bit about uh, the, the idea of an obstacle year, uh, what it is, what age, what age that is? Because of course the Tibetan way of counting um, age is uh, plus one, I think, to the, uh, the way we do it you know, here in the UK or whatever is the case, I, I believe, perhaps not. Um, and what, if anything, uh, would you say about your own obstacle year? Yeah, now that I can that I can speak about freely, actually the whole kind of Tibetan astrological stuff, I'm not sure, but it's supposed to be your 36th year, I believe. Um, and yeah, I remember when I was 36 and it hit August the 12th, which is my birthday. Oh, here's the puppy just at the end. Where are the waffles? So, the famous waffles. Who got, waffles got me through the obstacle year, man. Like, oh, this dog is a lifesaver. Um, yeah, I remember like August the 12th, uh, you know, or later in August, I was like, oh, yeah, obstacle year is totally fine, man. Nothing's kicked off. And then I realized that actually it starts a few months after the kind of Western thing. So actually, you know, whether it was a nocebo or not, I don't think you can nocebo what happened to me. But um, anyway, I think what we're talking about here is that the, the traumatic time I went through two and a half years ago, which we spoke about, and you were so helpful, man, on the phone. You were really uh, solace to me when we had that chat. Yeah, my life turned into a shit show, dude. I had within months of each other, my mum having a terminal diagnosis for Alzheimer's. I mean, mum had had the diagnosis of Alzheimer's a couple of years before, but it was almost like a joke. We're like, mum clearly does not have Alzheimer's, but then suddenly she had Alzheimer's. And now she is in 24 hour care, her flat, she can't speak, she can't eat, she's double incontinent, she can't walk, she doesn't know who I am, but we put on music and we kind of dance. She still remembers that. And sometimes she'll look at me and suddenly go, and I'll go, yes, 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 it's me, mom, it's me, it's me. And then she goes again. But you kind of, you know, you live for those moments. And actually it's easier now because she's like this beautiful, happy child. Uh, she's been stripped away to her kind of default. And mom's default was joy. She was a joyful, annoyingly joyful at times as a teenager, definitely annoyingly joyful. And she seems to be stripped down to that. So at least she's happy in this kind of bardo state that she's in. But two and a half years ago, it was actually much, much harder because she was still active and able to speak and drive, but getting lost on motorways and endangered and being angry and threatening and getting lost in town. And it was so, so bad. And I'm so close to my mum, too close. You know, a lot of the therapy I've had in the last two and a half years was helping to separate from that. There's something called um, 
It's actually called psychic incest, which is interesting to look into, which isn't kind of a sexual thing, but psychically there's an incestual thing of boys who are sometimes a little bit too close to their mum. And I definitely had qualities of that. So when my mum started to, you know, just die, the, the mum I knew, I mean, her physical body remains still now, but the mum I knew just started to die in front of my eyes. It was very, very hard for me to cope. Um, and at pretty much at the same time, me and my wife, 10 year relationship ended. Um, that was actually reasonably amicable. It was due to, um, we tried to have kids for like two, three years and we couldn't. And then Jade wanted um, IVF. And I felt at that time, our relationship had been so, um, had been so affected by for couples who are going trying to have a baby and not having a baby it affects everything this subtle sense of failure of not being good enough of emasculation seeps into every area of the relationship even though we both had the tests and were fine there were no actual fertility issues so we don't know what what it was um so by the time jay wanted ivf our relationship was in such a state that i was unwilling to to go there and for her that was a that was a deal breaker um Thank goodness, like two and a half years later, we're still friends. We made it. We see each other on a weekly, if not every couple of weeks basis. And we co-parent our little puppy together and it, and we still work together. We just did a, we did a course together just last week, um, teaching to the same course. But yeah, back then it was really, really bad. So the relationship broke down, mum was dying. And then it was actually the thing I entered into afterwards, which really fucked me up. And um, yeah, I had a full on emotional breakdown. Um, I had suicidal ideation for the first time, which is a fascinating thing to happen. Really, now I can see it as fascinating. I don't mean to minimize anyone who's, who's experienced this, but it was fascinating. It felt very linked to a kind of an ego grasping. I remember I was on this, I was in another country and I was stuck out there and I just couldn't see things getting any better. I could just see mum dying and this very toxic thing I had entered into straight after Jade that was very, very damaging for, for me and maybe for the other person too. And then mourning the relationship with Jade. And um, I was on a bus and suddenly just this thought came in really strong, like, like over the front glasses of awareness like that. And it just went like, it was just this thought about um, if I killed myself, and I was like, it was so rational. It was, it was like, well, you won't have to feel this way anymore. Um, and then really weirdly, it was like, your book sales will go through the roof. And then Jade is still your wife, you're not divorced. So she'd get all this, so she'd be fine. And then mum doesn't know you exist anyway, so she won't know. Um, and, then, and then actually I got to my brother and that's when it stopped. And I was never close with my brother, but now we're really close over the last couple of years from mum, you know, looking after mum, caring for mum, brought us really close. And I realized, no, that, and that just stopped the thought. And then it just went, it was the whole thing lasted 90 seconds. And then I was shocked. I was like, whoa, what the fuck was that? What the fuck was that? I just had a full on logical thought about killing myself. And um, it was fascinating and it was, terrible and it was all these things and I was heavily traumatized you know I couldn't this is why I know about the mindfulness thing when you're going through trauma like 
trying to sit to do my practice? No way. As soon as I sat in silence, boom, those demons would come up. I had to use the breath. It was the only thing I could do. Lucid dreaming? Forget about it. I didn't have a lucid dream in about a year. I couldn't sleep, let alone, <laughs> let alone have a lucid dream. So I had to, all this stuff, and it was so weird because I was writing the book at the time, I was just about to write the book. And it was as if like the universe was going, oh, you want to write a book about trauma-affected sleep? And you think because you had one traumatic thing that happened when you were 17, you've got the credential to do that? No, my friend. If you want to write about this, you need to know how those people you're teaching feel. You need to know what it's like to be afraid to go to sleep. You know, you need to know what it's like to have panic attacks in the day. You need to know what it's like to have suicidal ideation. And when that trauma sweeps through you, all the practice in the world, weirdly, doesn't seem to work in that moment. I mean, it does. Thank God, this probably the stability of the practice stopped me acting upon those thoughts and stopped and allowed me to get through it reasonably quickly. Now, only two and a half years later, and I feel not just back to normal, but better than ever. I grew up more in the last two years than I have in the last 20 years put together. A deep, profound growing upness into, into manhood, finally feeling like a man and not a boy in a big body. You know, it was really profound and I kind of wouldn't change any of it. It was vital. It was vital to creating the book. It was vital to my self-growth. It was vital to, to let Jade go and for both of us to be out of a marriage that was no longer serving us. There's a big difference between splitting up and getting unmarried. You know, me and Jade got unmarried. We didn't split. We are, I'm closer now to Jade Shaw than I was when we were married, which is fucked up, but it's true. It's, it just taught me so much. Um, and yeah, really helped me to, to empathize with those who are going through trauma. Mm. So yeah. And, and of course, so easy to Tibetan go, oh, it's the Tibetan obstacle year. That's why it happened. It's like, dude, it happened because there was a triumvir of, of shit that, you know, coalesced into this real kind of crazy year period. Um, but yeah, it did happen to be over that kind of 60, 36 year, I think. Mm. I'm very interested, actually, when you say you grew up more in the last two years. Um, no, I appreciate this about you, actually. You're, you're, you're uh, very open about your uh, life and uh, about your struggles uh, as well as as your successes and in fact even in you mentioned actually some of these themes that you've just discussed here in waking up to yeah. sleep you actually yeah, I think in the intro i talk about that i want it there you go right and uh, i think that's an interesting you know I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of curious what's behind that uh willingness to be so open uh, which i which as i've said i appreciate about you um but i'm also curious you said you've grown up more in these last two and a half years than, you know, so much anyway, in these last two and, a, two and a half years, and you've learned so much. Could you boil down what specifically it is that you've learned in what are the dynamics of that maturation process uh, that you've, you've, you've experienced in these last couple of years? Yeah. So I didn't realize until Jade left and I was living alone that I was massively scared about living alone. I was a 36 year old man who couldn't live alone. I had lived in the Buddhist center for eight years before that, surrounded by people and hadn't felt lonely in eight years, never had to have a meal alone if, unless you wanted to, you know, surrounded by Sangha. 
So, and I do remember in my 20s, when I first moved out of home, feeling a bit lonely sometimes if my flatmates weren't in and stuff. But, you know, sometimes we can think we've embraced the shadow because it hasn't appeared in our life when actually it just hasn't been triggered in many years. So the loneliness shadow hadn't been triggered in eight years living at the Buddhist center. And then moving in with Jade, of course, it's not triggered for another few years. And then Jade moves out and I realized I had a profound, deep, fierce fear of being alone. And I just couldn't do it. I was constantly asking friends to stay around, wanting to stay at other friends' houses. And it was this huge weak spot in my psyche that in other areas of my life, I felt so stable and so together and so with the practice and all this kind of stuff. And then there was this huge unintegrated aspect of myself that was deeply and profoundly lonely and totally afraid of being alone. And it was a real childlike part. And of course it was being mirrored by my mum leaving. So that little boy in me really did feel alone. Suddenly she doesn't know who I am. Where's my mum gone? So it was really infantile, really old trauma. Um, which we did trace to some childhood experiences that I had and a kind of early sexualization, which I wouldn't call uh, in any way uh, abuse, but there was an early sexualization of me that I was willingly part of, and it was nothing to do with my family or anything. Um, I was willingly part of, but was way too young to be sexualized. Um, and so it was that, it was revealing that real demon of loneliness. So the breakthroughs were learning to live alone, to be okay with myself, to be, to know that being in my own company wasn't a sense of failure, that, yeah, that, that there's a difference between aloneness and loneliness. And I needed to learn how to be alone without feeling lonely. And it was a profound breakthrough for me. And I had a very good therapist. So I'm still seeing now core process, which is the Karuna Buddhist based form of Western psychotherapy. So good, so good, so good. The core and core process is Buddha nature. So basically it should be, it's basically Buddha nature based psychotherapy, but they call it core process rather than, but core means Buddha nature, the core of one's being very good therapist who really helped me through it. Started going to men's groups, started exploring elements of my own sexuality. You know, I hadn't been single since I was in my kind of twenties. Um, and yeah, just this growing up thing. And I remember seeing in, in uh, Ken Wilber, he had this kind of graph, I think actually, where he had growing up and waking up. And I realized living at the Buddhist center, doing the three month retreats, you know, doing all this thing, I'd spent so much of my life focusing on waking up that actually the waking up thing maybe looked quite impressive from the outside. Like, oh, wow, I've done a bit of waking up. You know, this guy's a practitioner. The growing up axis oh, was sadly, sadly lacking. And then in the last two years, it's been the opposite. You know, as far as the waking up, I've done a little bit of, of formal practice and you know definitely had my lucid dreaming practice back but not anything compared to how it was before however on the on the growing up axis oh so much so much so much and a real awareness that if one combines the western psychotherapeutic process with the intrapsychic practices of adriana buddhism you have a very very powerful combination either by themselves i think for westerners lack something but if you combine them together you know, we have, after a therapy session, we'll be looking at the certain Vajrayana practices I'm doing before next week's therapy session, a perfect integration of Western therapeutic models with Vajrayana practice that was, has been so, so helpful. So, so helpful. So I don't know if I answered the question, but I know that I'm okay to be alone now. 
and that my self-worth is not dependent on being in a relationship. And that if I am in a relationship and I am in a relationship now, those can add to my happiness, absolutely, but in no way does not being a one detract from it. And maybe that's a realization most people get in their 20s, but I didn't. I was sadly and completely infantilely lacking in one part of my life, which manifested as a deep fear of being alone. Um, and yeah, it might still rear its head every now and again, but it's it's been embraced and, and befriended now, I think. Mm. I hope. Well, that's, yes, well, that's very fascinating. Thank <laughs> you. And, you know, I recently um, hosted uh, a dialogue, actually it's becoming a series of dialogues now between Rupert Spiro and Henry Shookman. Oh, yeah. And both of those uh, men are uh, spiritual teachers. Uh, Rupert Spiro is a, a well-regarded non-dual teacher. And Henry Shookman is a teacher in the Sambo lineage of Zen. Mm. Interestingly, both of them also were internationally renowned artists in their own rights. So Rupert Spira was described as one of the finest ceramicists of his generation. He has mm -hmm. his works. He was 30 years uh, a potter and his works in collections in, uh, all, all over the world. And Henry Shookman, uh, a multi multiple award-winning poet and author. And this was sort of before both of them became known as spiritual teachers, for want of a better word. Um, mm. So they have an interesting parallel track in that regard. Mm. Uh, so we've been talking about the intersection of creativity and um, uh, what you like, awakening, you know, spirituality, whatever, whatever. These, these words aren't really sufficient. But an interesting difference between the two of them is that Rupert found that as he and once again, this isn't quite the right way to say it, but as Rupert deepened in his spiritual explorations, um, which he would call his sort of quest for truth or his love of truth, mm -hmm. uh, he actually found that it enhanced and liberated and allowed himself to give himself fully to his art, mm -hmm. uh, which, he, which he called his love for beauty. He was able to reconcile through his uh, eventually, eventually um, his love for beauty and his love for truth, which had previously been somewhat um, in, in attention. And so he found he's able to give himself even more to his art. Uh, very interesting. Henry, on the other hand, found that as he, and he writes about this in his excellent memoir, One Blade of Grass, mm -hmm. Henry Shookman's uh, memoir, he found that as he progressed uh, into deeper uh, or spiritual uh, explorations and so on and so forth, and also reconciled and began to heal lots of his trauma. He had lots and lots of trauma also to reconcile. He found that the engine of his creativity uh, um, was, well, he found that the, I think he called it an angst, mm. kind of existential angst, a kind of pain essentially, mm. which was the engine of his creativity was healed and began to be calmed, and therefore actually his impetus to write mm. uh, was, uh, was, was, was largely lost. He's, he's subsequently since returned with his book, One Blade of Grass, as an mm. example, but for many years he didn't write. So these are two interesting tracks, um, I think that are actually significant difference in an otherwise rather, rather similar mm. trajectory. You know, you're talking there about, uh, you have a different relationship now, certainly, it seems, to your lucid dreaming practice, for example. You're doing less lucid dreaming, uh, is what you said. Yeah. I'm wondering if you relate to either of those. Uh, 
as you've been you know engaging in this deep healing uh deep uh, maturation process of of growing up as you put it uh, mm. in addition to your waking up practice i'm wondering if you yourself see any uh how do you see your relationship to your art if you want you know your art which is i think we can say things like your lucid dreaming practice certainly and yes your writing um mm. also you're a best-selling award-winning author yourself um and also your presentation public speaking skills also something i think that um, you, you craft uh, very well and, uh, and and deliver very skillfully. So I'm curious if, if you've seen any, uh, in line with Spira or Shukman, any kind of um, change in relationship to those dynamics? Yeah, so I think I relate much more to Spira. So I found that actually, you know, what I was going through really fueled my creativity. Um, now, the lucid dreaming, it wasn't so much that I stopped the lucid dreaming. It was just that I couldn't do it because of the sleep practice. Um, but that allowed me to learn the breath work practices and concentrate on the yoga nidra and these other kind of sleep practices, not more the conscious sleeping practices more than the lucid dreaming practices. So I didn't feel that it completely kind of reduced the creativity in that way. And as far as the book writing and stuff are oh, no, it's fuel for it. I gave some of the best workshops and presentations when I was in the depth of my trauma. I mean, I remember one time, literally, I was about to go live, I had like 120 people on this course in the lockdown, you know, and everyone was doing online courses. So there aren't usually 120, but this one had a lot of people on it. And I was drying my eyes because I'd just been crying over my heartbreak. And then suddenly, welcome. Okay, here we are, day one of the Lucid Dreaming workshop, blah, blah, blah. I gave a hell of a workshop because there was something like, I could give to others like, ah, for this weekend, there's no time to think of me and my heartbreak. I need to support these people. I've got to teach them lucid dreaming and dream yoga in like three days. Like that's my focus. And there was something that was so liberating about being forced out of this kind of ego, poor me state that was re really, I enjoyed it. I just kept on booking in workshops. I was like, ah, as long as I'm teaching, I'm not in my own story because I'm, I'm with them. I'm, 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 I, I want to be part of their story. I, I want to give to this, these, these students who are, who are learning from me. So yeah, I found it was brilliant. I gave some of the best courses in the depths of trauma and the depths of heartbreak. Um, yeah, so I found that. I find it really kind of fuel for the fire. Of course, God, I, I, I don't want to go through that again at all. But I know that in the future, if I do have something similar, actually it's, there is, gold to be found in it it can be alchemized but i think that's i can see why the other person you mentioned there uh didn't have that because i think it's a personality type thing and i could see very obviously how it could completely sap and drain your energy and give you no none of the self-confidence one needs to create art or to share art with others but in my particular case it was it was not that way i think in Schuchman's case it was the calming of the inner turmoil that came from successful resolution of trauma mm. that resulted in the uh falling away of the of the desire to create art it wasn't necessarily i think in the midst of the trauma perhaps was an engine for his creativity oh i the, see it was the having resolved it to an extent or having healed it to an extent that he found what was left was this deep peace mm. a deep peace that um uh, didn't have the dynamics of that were, you know, I mean, for those who you know should listen to Henry talk about it himself, it's very fascinating as he, he mm. describes it. Just look, look back to the archives, Henry Schutman. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. 
So now you've resolved many of these things, or at least you're more resolved. And you were, and you were yeah. saying that now you said actually that your lucid dreaming is you're doing a little less, for example, uh, you said it, in fact, I think the direct quote, it's nowhere near as what it was before, I think you said. Yeah, and that's yeah. fair enough. Fair, fair enough. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, sort of coming out the other side of that to an extent, and of course, uh, these things, you know, have always layers and so on. But having come coming out of that to a certain extent, do you notice anything in uh, now? Yes. So I don't feel the same as I did before. Really, in any kind of way of life, especially relationships. Um, I feel like I'm probably in the first adult relationship I've ever been in right now, which sounds crazy, but I mean, really an adult relationship with boundaries and without illusion and without projection. It's so new to me. And that has occurred. Also a little bit of, um, there there is still, I do absolutely still have motivation and, um, and want to do things, but I think the focus of that motivation has shifted somewhat. For example, when I do the work with people who are traumatized or veterans, for example, there's a feeling of why do I do anything else? Because this is like ground level helping. So my focus on maybe the kind of more big commercial lucid dreaming retreats I used to do, um, that has lessened greatly. And now the focus is on, you know, how can I help the most people at the ground level? And when someone is so traumatized, they can't sleep. And then you share some exercises with them and suddenly they sleep for the first time. Like two days later, you're like, ah, that, that's what makes me feel good. That's what I know. I, that's what, that's what makes me sleep well at night. Like there's much more of a focus on that kind of core level helping. Um, and also the lucid dreaming, one of the reasons why the lucid dreaming, uh, hasn't fully come back yet is the vast majority of the lucid dream dreaming practice I would do was on retreat. I mean, you've been to one of those retreats where I do the four wake ups a night. We all sleep in the room together. Every 90 minutes you wake up and drop down. Yeah, I basically fun. created that because it was what gave me the most lucid dreams. And I was like, oh, let's all do it together. So I can't wait to get back to live teaching because then I have this retreat set up. And also there's a little bit of, when there are 50 people all expecting you as the teacher to have a lucid dream that night, (laughs) because of the ego, you kind of step into it a little bit more. So um, yeah, I am looking forward to getting back there and teaching because that'll really kind of pump my practice up again. Mm. Um, And yeah, it's not like I've stopped having lucid dreams. Um, in fact, I'm running a course at the moment where each week we have a certain lucid dreaming challenge from a different tradition. So that's been really fun to get my own practice back. But I think whereas before I saw lucid dreaming and dream yoga as kind of, I'd put all my eggs in that basket. Now I just feel so much more connected to the breath and the sitting practice and to waking state meditation, um, and to the conscious sleeping practices, not just the lucid dreaming. So I think it's kind of broadened my horizons a little bit on that. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. You know, Charlie, one of the things that we discussed in our previous interview, episode two, all that time ago, was your uh, relationship with mentors. We mentioned Rob Nairn, uh, mm. for example, the South African uh, mentor of yours. We mentioned, of course, Lama Yashe, et cetera, and some others. 
I'm curious if you've had any reflection from your mentors during or after this process that uh, seems significant or worth uh, sharing in this context. Yeah, yeah, there was one. And I almost quoted it earlier, actually, when I was talking about it, when I had a check-in with one, one of my mentors, a brilliant man called Yaakov Darling Khan, who's a shamanic practitioner and co-creator of something called Movement Medicine. And this was only about maybe like nine months to a year ago when I would say I was fully kind of recovered from what happened. And we're having this check-in and I was just explaining to him about things in my life and I was saying how, and you know, now I finally feel back to normal. And I was telling him about an interaction I'd had with my mum and how I had moved in to care for her in this time. And, um, and he said, yeah, not only back to normal, Charlie, better, better, better than normal. This is new, this is growth. There's, there's newness here. And I kind of knew it in myself, but you know, it always helps to hear it from one's elder to kind of reflect that back to you. And that really gave me a confidence that we can get through these times where we experience traumatic events, the end of a marriage, the death of one's mother, all these kind of things, and not just get back to a normal level of functioning, but actually use it through some alchemical process to grow beyond that, to actually reach there with more strength. You know, I kept on thinking about kind of strength training. I know you used to, and I believe you still do, do, do strength training stuff. And I remember thinking like, wow, if I can get through the shit I've had in the last couple of years, my mental resilience muscles are going to be so strong. You know, I'm going to be ripped mentally in my kind of mental resilience. And I think that has happened in, in, in some way. You know, a strength of that, that finally feeling kind of like a man rather than a boy in a man's body, I think... That has stayed with me, yeah. And um, and just the furthering of this mission, the mission statement is so clear for me now. It is so clear. My job in this life is to spread the Dharma of the dream state in the West, just as Padmasambhava did in Tibet. That's it. To spread the Dharma of the dream state in the West as Padmasambhava did in Tibet. That's it. If by the time I leave this life, I can have achieved that goal, that's it. That's brilliant. Um, and that mission is very, very clear right now. And the Dharma of the dream state is not just lucid dreaming. It's helping people to sleep. It's conscious sleeping practices. It's breath work that affects sleep. It's how to not be asleep when you're with your eyes open, how, you know, wakefulness. That mission statement is really, really clear. So it's nice to be in that state where I know the way ahead. Wonderful. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, Charlie. Thank you very much for, uh, for your time. Wake up to sleep. Five powerful practices to transform stress and trauma for peaceful sleep and mindful dreams. I strongly uh, recommend everyone uh, get a copy. It's fabulous. And charliemorley.com for lots of free resources and all the latest updates on Charlie's courses. Online, lots of them, but now you were telling me before, increasingly you're, you're, you're doing some in-person retreats as, as, as we are coming in now to 2022. That's very exciting. Yes, finally booked in. A couple of dates in America, Italy, France, um, Czech Republic, and a few at Holy Isle too. So yeah, really glad to be doing in-person retreats again. Great. Charlie Morley, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. 
For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.